Good morning. I'm so uh, glad that you're here today, especially if you're joining us for the first time. We want to welcome you to our church. We are so glad that you are here. Well, as Pastor Greg mentioned, we've been in a series uh, for a while now called God Inside. It's about the Holy Spirit. I think it's been really enlightening and very instructive to all of us about who the Holy Spirit is. But today I wanted to just hit the pause button because there's so many things going on in our church and, and just... I just wanted to come this morning uh, just to share your heart, uh, share my heart about some of the things that have been going on, um, and, I'll, and I'll get into that in just a second. Uh, we've had, we've just taken so many hits lately, and, and I just want to urge you, uh, I know that as I begin the message, uh, as I recount some of the things that have happened here recently, uh, you might think, wow, that's really depressing, it's so discouraging, and, and you might just want to leave. Don't leave, Okay. Wait to the end of the message, because I think it. I think that you'll be encouraged by it. But um, you know, as I recount some of the things that have happened, uh, it is a little bit. It is a little bit heavy. Uh, what happens? What's happened to some of our people? It is heavy. And so, stick with me, okay? So let me open up our time in a word of prayer, and, we're, and then we're going to get into God's word today. <clears throat> I only Father, I I can't think of anywhere else I I'd rather be than right here at church. And I just thank you so much for the opportunity we get to, to have to gather here. And Father, I thank you for every single person that you brought here today. And I, I believe it was for a reason. And I know that we, life is hard. Life can be, uh, it is heartbreaking at times. And Father, sometimes it's just so hard to make sense of, of any of it. And I pray, God, that today, in fact, I beg you, God, today, that you would speak to, through me in such a way that that we would begin to understand a little bit about this whole issue of suffering and why some of the things that happen, happen. I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would just move in us and, and that your Holy Spirit would speak through me, that, that we might all be a little bit more encouraged um, when this hour is over. So, God, thank you. I, I ask, God, that you just touch your people. Um, encourage them. Encourage them from your word. Encourage them with the truth. Um, and, I, and I lift these things up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I think it all started for me when I get, returned home from Japan in May. The very first day back to the office, it was Tuesday, uh, we had our staff meeting. And as soon as our staff meeting was over, Pastor Dave, one of our pastors, came into my office. He says, can I speak with you for a second? I said, of course. He came in, closed the door, and sat down and says, I just wanted to tell you that I have cancer. And he told and when he, when he broke that news to us, to me, that he had tongue cancer, <clears throat> I was just shocked. Um, it, just, it was just devastating news to hear that from one of our young pastors. And, of course, if you've been here, you, you know the story. He had surgery. They removed a little more than half of his tongue. Uh, he's going to begin radiation treatments. They found a little bit of cancer in one of the lymph nodes. But um, he'll begin that treatment, uh, I think, mid-August. And it's going to go through his... Um, wedding period is getting married the first of September, but we think he's going to be good to go. And so, uh, so that's kind of how that ended. But and, and, and it's not really the story's really not over. But that would kind of just triggered so many other things. It wasn't long after his surgery that we learned that one of the young couples in our church lost their nearly six-month-old son, JT. Um, this is JT with his dad, uh, Ted, and. He, he was laid, JT was laid to rest yesterday. And it just, it just broke our hearts. Uh, earlier last week, 
we unexpectedly lost one of the mothers in our church, he, Kim, and here she is with her six, six-year-old son and four-year-old daughter. Of course, this was taken a little, a little uh, you know, a while back. And her husband, James, I, I saw him here today. And uh, again, it, just, it was just devastating to us. And if that wasn't bad enough, at the end of last week, we learned that <clears throat> one of the boys who signed up to attend our youth retreat this weekend, we've got 100 kids at Forest Home uh, and they're just having a, a great time, and they'll be back this afternoon. But one of the boys who signed up to go on the retreat, who was a friend of one of our uh, uh, high school students, uh, he didn't come to our church, but he just signed up to come. Uh, he died in his sleep uh, midweek. He is 16 years old. His name is Daniel Sue. And I understand he had some health issues, um, but I don't think anyone expected that uh, he would be home with the Lord. Again, he didn't attend our church, but I understand he was a, a very devout Christ follower, which, is, which, is, which gives us some hope. But, but all these events, we just keep hearing about them, they just have left us reeling. And then many of you know uh, Matt Rodriguez. Matt Rodriguez is a young man in our church. He's 16, and he's been battling cancer. Many of you have written letters to him and prayers for him and notes to him and have even given donations to his family. And he's been making really good progress, was home the last month from the hospital for the first time in about four months. And then last week, the doctors discovered that the mass next to his heart had returned. And again, once, once again, the family's just absolutely devastated. I mean, it just seems like it's been one thing after the other, one thing after the other. And so I wanted to come to you this morning and just kind of unwrap some of this. And you know, because what are we to make of all this suffering? What are we to make of it? You know, I, I'm a, I've been going on 26 years as a pastor now. And I wanted to sh just share with you a, couple, a few things that I've learned. This is kind of my theology on suffering. And I, I believe it's rooted in the word of God. But the first thing is this. And by the way, in your Baywatch, you received a program when you walked in. We call it Baywatch. And inside, there's a sheet. I believe it's light green. And all the verses are listed for, most of the verses are listed there for you. But if you can follow along with the, in the Bible, that would, would be even better. We're going to kind of jump around today. And we'll put all the scriptures up here for you. You can also uh, follow, it, follow along on, on our SBCC app. You can go to the, you can go to the um, Apple Store, the Google Store, Play Store, and, and download our app, South Bay Community Church, and all the notes will be there for you as well. And you can listen to the message online uh, at your app or at our um, YouTube page later on, probably this evening. But the first thing that I've kind of learned about suffering is, is that there are no guarantees. And you can write that one down. There are no guarantees. Right? There are no guarantees in this life. And we see that even in the scriptures. If you look at the book of James, James chapter 4. Starting verse 13, he, he writes, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. You see, James says you can't presume to know what you're going to do today and tomorrow and the next day and the day after that. There are no guarantees. We have no idea what's going to happen today, let alone tomorrow or the day after that or next week or next year and even beyond that. There are no guarantees. Jesus says something very similar in a parable that he told about a wealthy, uh, successful farmer. Uh, we, found this, we find this story in Luke chapter 12. But in this story, this wildly successful man, he wildly successful, wondered what he was gonna, where he was going to store all of his crops because 
He was just blessed with so much prosperity. He didn't know what to do with all his crops. And here's what he said. Luke chapter 12, verse 18. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? God called the man a fool for thinking that he's got his life all planned out, that he's going to do this and he's going to do that and I'm going to build a house and I'm going to get this job and I'm going to do all these things. And that very night, his life was required of him. He was going to die. And somebody else was going to get everything he had. There are no guarantees. There are no guarantees. The wisest man who ever lived, King Solomon, put it this way, Proverbs 27.1. He said, do not boast about tomorrow for you do not know what a day may bring. That says it all. There are no guarantees. There are no guarantees that if you lose one member of the family, that you won't lose another member of the family the very same day, the very next day, or the next week, or the same year. There are no guarantees. I think about Tia Coleman. She survived that horrific duck boat accident in Branson, Missouri last week. She lost nine members of her family when the boat capsized on Table Rock Lake, including her husband, Glenn, her nine-year-old and seven-year-old sons, Reese and Evan. Here are the kids and her one-year-old daughter, Aria. She lost her uncle, her nephew, her mother-in-law, her father-in-law, and her sister-in-law within a matter of seconds. There are no guarantees. And it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how young you are. It doesn't matter that you just got engaged. It doesn't matter that you just had kids. It doesn't matter that you just got married. It doesn't matter that you're a kid. There are no guarantees. Second, I've come to realize that there are no explanations There are no explanations for some of the things that happen. When it comes to suffering, most of you probably think of Job. I think he comes to mind as someone who suffered a lot. And as you may recall, if you're familiar with the story of Job found in the Old Testament, uh, he lost everything. He lost his family. He lost his livelihood. He lost his income. He lost his job. And then he lost his health as he was afflicted with tremendous physical suffering. And so three of his friends gathered around him. They, the three of his pals gathered around him to speak into his life. And I want to tell you what they said. First of all, Job chapter 4. Friend number one, Eliphaz. Here's what he said to Job. Job 4 verse 7. Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed Those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. And the breath of God, they perish. At the blast of his anger, they are no more. So here's what Eliphaz said. He he asked a rhetorical question. Consider now who being innocent has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? And you know what the insinuation was? The insinuation was, Job, you're not innocent. Job, you are guilty. Job, you are bad. And that's why all this has happened to you. Friend number two, Bildad. Here's what he said to Job. Job chapter 8, verse 20. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man nor take the hand of evil doers. What was Bildad's insinuation? Job, you're not blameless, dude. You must be an evil doer. God has brought suffering on you because you have rejected him. That was the insinuation. And then there's friend number three, Zophar. 
Job chapter 11, verse 13. Yet, and here's what he said to Job, yet if you devote your heart to him and stretch out your hands to him, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then free of fault, you will lift up your face, you will stand firm and without fear. Friend number three's insinuation is exactly the same. Job, your heart hasn't been devoted to God. You haven't put away sin from your life. And that's why God has brought all this suffering upon you. That's why you suffer. And all three of his friends said the same thing. And their reasoning, their reasoning is called a syllogism. If we can put that word up here, syllog- it's a syllogism. Let me give you an example of a syllogism. All right, syllogism would go like this. All, number one, all dogs are animals. All dogs are animals. All animals have four legs. Therefore, all dogs have four legs. That's syllogism. Now, in the case of Job's friends, here's how their reasoning went. Number one, God sends calamity on wicked people only. Number two, you have suffered calamity. Therefore, number three, you must be wicked. That was their reasoning. That was their conclusion. That was the message that Job's pals conveyed to Job, that that he was wicked. And that's why God did all this to him. That's why he suffered. And you know what? They couldn't have been more wrong. They couldn't have been more wrong. And you know why I know that? Because I read the first verse of the first chapter. Job 1.1 says this. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. He was a good man. He loved the Lord. He was blameless. You see, God didn't bring suffering on Job because he was evil. He wasn't evil. God didn't punish him for something he did or something that his parents did. He was righteous. He was a good man, and yet he suffered. You see, sometimes there are no explanations. There are no explanations for why bad things happen to us. Now, it's true that there are consequences for our sins. There are consequences for our behavior consequences for our actions. If you lie, if you continuously lie, you continuously cheat and steal, you'll pay a price. There will be consequences for your behavior. If you constantly drink and become an alcoholic, there will be consequences for your behavior. If you drive drunk, there will be consequences that not, not only you will pay, but somebody else could pay with their own lives. If you keep pumping drugs into your veins, there will be consequences. There will be a price to pay. If you're angry, if you're prideful, if you're, if you're bigoted, there will be a price to pay. Eventually, there will be a price to pay. See, the Bible says we will reap what we sow. That said, I don't believe that God purposely takes the life of someone in an act of divine retribution because they are evil. If that was the case, all the evil people in the world would be dead. But man, we get so many evil people in the world. And God has not acted toward them in an act of divine retribution because God God is patient, because God is gracious. And if God were to take the life of every sinner in this world, then we would be gone too because we all fall short of the glory of God. You see, sometimes there's no rhyme or reason for why tragedy strikes or for why a baby dies or for for why a young mother dies or for why a, a boat capsizes and kills nine people from the same family. There's just no rhyme or reason, no explanation. About a month and a half ago, I was in the hallway here between services, and I came across an, an older couple. I'd never seen them before, and they were, they were wiping away tears. And so I, I stopped to chat with them, 
that was their first time here at our church. They told me they, they were here from Pennsylvania. And, and they said they just got into town uh, to attend the funeral of the 30-year-old son who was killed in a motorcycle accident. And they said, we're, we're not from here. We're new in town, and we're just staying in a hotel down the street. But we just, had to, we just felt like we had to go to church. And so we looked for churches, and we found you, and so here we are. Their son, 30 years old, was a, an engineer at SpaceX. I understand he worked directly with Elon Musk. He was married just, he and his bride just bought a, a brand new home in Hermosa Beach. Hadn't even moved in. And now he's gone. No guarantees. And there are no explanations. Now sometimes you can point to sin as a contributing factor to tragedy and heartbreak. Like the time someone took the life of a young man who used to attend our church, Joey Galvan. He was a terrific young man, son of Ed and Melinda Galvan. This is when he was baptized uh, a few years ago here at our church. He used to help out in our tech ministry. He was at another church at the time. He had just left that church, standing at a bus stop, when an unknown assailant came and took his life. He's only 22 years old. Sometimes tragedy strikes because of the sinfulness of man. And when we heard the news about Joey, we just cried. We cry a lot around here. It reminds me of what Job said. Job 16, 16, he said, my face is red with weeping and on my eyelids is deep darkness. He just has rings around his eyes, just dark circles around his eyes because all he does is cry because of the tragedy that came upon him. David also had hit more than his share of grief. He, grief. he lamented in Psalm 6, 6, I am weary with my moaning every night. I've flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. He, David cried so much that his bed became like a swimming pool of tears. There's so many tears. Can you relate? Has it ever happened to you? Have you ever cried so much you, you wonder whether you can cry anymore because there, are there any more tears left? Well, if you haven't, you probably will. One day you probably will. And you can write that one down. There are tears in this life. There are no guarantees. There are no explanations. And there are, and there are tears. And why are there tears? Why are there so many tears? Job, Job 14.1, Job said this way. He said, man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. You know, this phrase, man is born of a woman, speaks of our humanness. Right? That we're all human. That we're born of a, of a woman. We're born of a man. And we are fragile. And, and Job said, life is short. It is few of days. And, and, and the few of days that God has granted to us is full of trouble, and that's why there's so many tears, because life is full of trouble. And it's impossible, it's impossible to go through life without shedding tears along the way. It's impossible. You know, you often hear us say that our hearts are broken. And it's almost become cliche around here because we say it so often, but it's true. Every time we get a call, every time we get an email, every time we get a message that one of you has taken a hit, it breaks our hearts. It really does. It breaks our hearts. But you know what else is true? Even though our hearts are broken all the time, we have joy. I have joy. I really have joy. You know, the Apostle Paul nailed it when he said he was sorrowful yet rejoicing. He said that in 2 Corinthians 6.10. Put it up here for you. He is sorrowful yet always rejoicing. You, you write this one down. There is joy. There is joy. How could that be? How could he say that, that, that he is sorrowful and at the same time he is rejoicing, that he has joy? I mean, 
these two emotions are on the opposite end of the, end of the spectrum, sorrow and joy. It's on the opposite end of the spectrum. Yet he, yet he could say that he had sorrow and joy at the same time. And the reason he could say that he had joy was because he had Christ. He had Christ. Paul rejoiced because he had Jesus. He didn't rejoice because he had sorrows. Nobody rejoices over their sorrows. Nobody rejoices over their pain. Nobody, when you lose a loved one, that's not something to rejoice about. When, when you find out that you've got cancer, that's not something worth celebrating. But even in the midst of suffering, Paul had joy because he had Jesus in his heart. Because he had the Lord in his heart. And why? Why is that significant? Because he knew that Jesus loved him. That's why. Here's what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. It's a verse you're familiar with, but he wrote, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Here's the part I like. Who loved me and, and gave himself for me. Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. Would you underline that last part? He loved me and gave himself for me. This is an extraordinary statement considering Paul's background and where he came from. This guy was messed up. He was messed up. Before he became a Christ follower, he cloaked himself in religion and went around trying to kill Christians. He was a hater. He was a bigot. He was was violent. He was a thug. He was really a a terrorist. He terrorized Christians. And then God got a hold of him. He got a hold of him. And, And if that isn't an act of grace, I don't know what is. Jesus got a hold of him. Paul came to see who Jesus was, that he died on the cross for his sins, and that completely changed his life. Through Jesus' death, God completely removed the divine punishment that, was, that he was sure to receive. He re- removed it, and instead he became the recipient of God's divine and sweet mercy and grace. And that's why Paul said, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In the midst of unceasing sorrow, Paul had joy because he knew that Jesus loved him, that God loved him. And you can have that joy yourself. You can have that joy knowing that Jesus loves you. Did you know that Jesus loves you? Did you know that God loves you? God loves every single one of you. It is one of the greatest truths in the Bible, if not the greatest truth in the Bible, that he would send his son to die on a cross. But God demonstrates, Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates... His own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you. This week, Pastor Dave came back to work part-time. So good to have him back. The other day, we sat and we were chatting a little bit, and he was telling me a little bit about about, um, his journey. And I'm not going to give you all the details because I hope to have him up here uh, in short order, and I want him to describe his own journey to you, some of the things that he's been through. But, but he did tell me this, and I, did, I, I asked him for permission to share this with you, but he, he told me that there were times when he was afraid that fear would grip his heart, thinking that he would never speak again. He said, what if the, the doctors go in there and find out the cancer is spread and the entire tongue needs to be removed? He said, there was a, he said, there was a possibility I might never speak again. And, and he says that fear just, it was um, overwhelming to him. The the fear of the unknown. He said there were moments when when he would just, when he thought about it, he would just start crying. And Dave, Pastor Dave told me that it was only when he thought about God, when 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 he read your prayers, 
it was only when he thought about God that he felt comforted and at peace. Now, here's what he said, and I, and I, wrote, it, I wrote down what he said. He said, I'll put it up here for you. He said, I had an image of God sitting over the whole earth, and I was in the middle of it, and I saw that he had everything under control. He was working everything out. He said, that's what gave me comfort. And I told him that what he just said reminded me of, of something that is written in Isaiah chapter 40. It's very similar. Isaiah 40 verse 21 says, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. And his people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. God has the whole world, the whole world, the whole universe for that matter, your very life in his hands. He is in control. And we only see a tiny fraction of what he is doing. And sometimes the the part that we see, the tiny fraction that we see, doesn't even make any sense. Yet, God is in control. He is in control. And that's why in the midst of his own suffering, Job said, in Job chapter 42, verse 2, he said, I know that you can do all things, God, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. There is no power in the universe that can keep God from fulfilling his plans for your life. Nothing. When things get really bad, when you get laid off from your job, when you get kicked out of your house, when you find out you'll never be able to have children, when you fail that major exam, when your parents get a divorce, when you find out that you have cancer of the tongue, when no matter what your heartache or tragedy is, God is in control. God is in control. He's enthroned above the circle of the earth and he's working everything out for good. Even when you're suffering, you can rejoice, right? Because God is in control. You can write that one down. God is in control. And it's so easy to lose sight of that. It's so easy to lose sight of that, especially when you're depressed and you're discouraged and you're down and out. And all you can see is how much you hurt. All you can feel is the pain. Maybe it's your heart breaking. Or maybe it's your body that's breaking. And it's so loose, easy to lose sight of the fact that God is in control. You know, centuries ago, Martin Luther, who was the leader, when the leader of the uh, Protestant Reforma- Reformation, rebuked Erasmus. Erasmus was this Dutch Christian humanist, if there is such a thing, a Dutch Christian humanist. And here's what Martin Luther said to him when he rebuked him. He says, your thoughts of God are too human. Your thoughts of God are too human. You put God in a box. You limit his power. You restrain him. But God can't be contained. His power can't be checked. The Jews had the same problem. And so God lodged this complaint against them. In Psalm 50, verse 21, he said, You thought I was exactly like you. Didn't you, Israel? You thought I was exactly like you. But God is not like us. And we are not like him. If God was like us, we'd all be in trouble. Right? We would be doomed. Think about what God is like. If you go back to Isaiah, your homework for the week, okay? Read Isaiah 40 this week. Read it tonight. Read Isaiah 40, one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. Isaiah 40. Here are a couple things that God said about, Isaiah said about God. Verse 10. Behold, these are not on 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 your notes, by the way, because there's so many. I'll just put them up here for you. 
Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Verse 12, who has measured the waters? Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in balance? Who, can, who is big enough to weigh all of the mountains on planet earth on a scale? He can tell you exactly how much it weighs. Verse 15, behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust, as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Verse 26, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these things, who created all the stars. He brings out their host by number, calling them out by name. One by one, he calls them out by name by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one of these stars, these heavenly hosts, is missing. Who can do that? Verse 28, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. God never gets tired like we get tired. Never has to take a nap. Doesn't have to sleep for eight hours. God can go on and on and on. See, God is not like us. There is no one like God. There's no one like him. There is no one who can do what he can do. There's no one who is as powerful as he is. There's no one as loving as he is. And even when bad things happen and evil may appear to triumph in a given day, God is in control. God is in control. I want to share a picture. This is Dottie Soliday. I went to Pepperdine with her nephew, Joel. We were good friends at Pepperdine. She died. I never met her. She died on Valentine's Day of this year, February 14th. She lived in Des Moines, Iowa. And I want to read to you her obituary. Now, I'm not in the habit of reading obituaries, but, but I want to read to you her obituary. Here's what it said. I've been in some interesting mansions, but only as a tourist. I used to enjoy stair, stair climbing in impressive seaside lighthouses, but there are no words to describe the joy of moving into my new perfect eternal home which the Lord has provided for me by a sovereign and loving hand. I look forward to my friends and family being my close neighbors when it's time for them to relocate one day. My name is Dorothy Dottie Donahue Soliday. I moved in my, into my forever mansion on February 14, 2018 at the age of 79. Waiting... There for me were my parents, George and Irene Donahue, and others of the Donahue family, the King family, my grandparents, and the Soliday family, known for their exuberant and faithful attendance at many family reunions. Their future gatherings will all be held at the mansion as time moves on. To those I have loved throughout my earthly journey and have left behind, I will be with you in spirit. To my wonderful husband, Harry Holiday, Soliday, I love you. To my children, daughter, Melinda Lusher and Scott Lusher and son, Andrew Soliday, uh, I love you too. To my handsome grandsons, Landon, Carson, Jackson, and Caden Lusher, I will always be looking out for you, plus cheering you on in your walk with our Lord and Savior. Dottie wrote that herself. She wrote that, isn't that great? She wrote that as if she was alive. Well, she is. Right, she is. When her heart beat for the last time on Valentine's Day, that wasn't the end of her. She wasn't dead. That was just the beginning. She just went on living in heaven, in, in, in real heaven. And we know that there's a heaven 
Because the Bible tells it there is, and it describes it for us in some detail. In reply to the question, what's heaven like? Reverend Billy Graham, who's now in heaven, responded. He said this. I put it up here for you. He said, heaven for the Christian will be a place of glorious life that will never end. Joy inexpressible, limitless peace, pure love, beauty beyond description. That's what heaven is. Greatest of all will be the presence of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, with whom we will enjoy fellowship forever. Loved ones who have known and loved the Lord will be there. Heaven will be a place in which its inhabitants will be freed from the fears and insecurities that plague and haunt us in the present life. Heaven will be what we have always longed for. All the things that have made earthly, the earth unlovely and tragic will be absent in heaven. There will be no night, no death, no disease, no sorrow, no tears, no ignorance, no disappointment. Do I hear an amen? No war. It will be filled with happiness, worship, love, and perfection. That's what Billy Graham said, and he was absolutely right. And some of his thoughts about heaven come directly from Scripture. Well, all of it comes from Scripture. Revelation 21, 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That's heaven, right? Heaven is with man. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying. No more tears, no, no, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Man. Third reason we can rejoice even when we're sorrowful is because of the promise of heaven. You can have joy in your heart no matter what you're going through because of the promise of heaven. There is a heaven and it is our home and one day we will be there forever and ever and ever. You see, earth isn't our home. Gardena isn't your home. Torrance isn't your home. The United States of America isn't your home. Heaven is your home. We are citizens of heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we're just passing through this place. And we'll be here for only a very short time. Our days are few. And one day we'll be home. And we'll live there forever and ever and ever. Now there's just one hitch. Not everybody will go to heaven. Not everyone's going to go to heaven. Heaven is not like playing Monopoly. When you play Monopoly, everyone who passes go collects $200. It's automatic. Right? Well, in the game of life, not everyone who dies goes to heaven. It's not automatic. The Bible tells us that only those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ go to heaven. I believe with all my heart, he is in heaven. From what I know, those people who died on that duck boat accident, they're all church people. Because of their faith, they're all in heaven. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, that's, that's it right there. Only those who put their faith and trust in Jesus go to heaven. Now, I didn't say that. Jesus said that. He said the only way to heaven is through him. The only way to heaven is, through, is by believing in Jesus Christ, that he was the son of God, that he died on the cross for your sins, and he was raised from the dead. You've got to believe that in order to go to heaven. And I, and I just say this. If you believe if you believe that Jesus was God's son, if you believe that he died on a cross and was raised from the dead, then you've got to believe what he said about how to go to heaven. You've got to believe that. And the only way to go to heaven is through him. And that phrase there, no one, that last sentence there, no one comes to the Father except through me, is referred to as a universal negative. 
It's a universal negative, which means in one fell swoop, Jesus eliminated all the uh, other options for getting into heaven. It's a universal negative. He eliminated all of them. There are no other ways. There are no other options. There's no other way to get to heaven. It's a universal negative. The only way, way to get to heaven is through faith in Jesus Christ, by believing in him. That's it. Which is why not everyone will go to heaven. Unless you're a baby or a young child. See, I believe that infants and young children go to heaven. I've never really spoken about this here at church, but let me just give you a quick little uh, theology on this. One of the passages that supports this view is found in Deuteronomy chapter 1. If you want to look at that, Deuteronomy chapter 1. But let me just give you a little background before I read it. As you may know, the Jews were, were held in Egypt, in captivity in Egypt for 400 years, and then Moses went to free them. And Pharaoh finally let them go, and they escaped, and the Egyptians changed their mind and they went chasing after them and they came upon the Red Sea and got part of the Red Sea when Moses lifted his staff and they went to the other, got to the other side and that Red Sea closed in and all the Egyptians killed them all. Now they're on the, de on the other side on the Sinai Desert and they wandered in that desert for 40 years. They wandered in the desert for 40 years and, and while they were in that desert they rebelled, the Jews, after all that God did for them, they rebelled against God. And so because of their rebellion, God sentenced their, that generation that wandered in the desert, sentenced them uh, to death in the sense that they would not enter into the promised land except for two people. Deuteronomy chapter 1, take a look at verse 34. It says, And the Lord heard your words and was angered, and he swore, Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers because they were so evil. I said, he sentenced them to this punishment that they would not enter the promised land. Verse 36, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, he shall see it. And to him and to his children, I will give the land on which he has trodden because he has wholly followed the Lord. So the first exception was Caleb. Caleb was allowed to enter the promised land, but everybody else, no. He was allowed to enter. Second, verse 38, jump down to verse 30, it says, Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inheritance. So he was the second person, the second exception. Joshua and Caleb were allowed to enter into the promised land. The third, there's, third, there's, there's actually a third. And the third is not an individual, but it was a group of people. Take a look at verse 39. And it says, and as for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there. And to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. You see, God allowed children to enter into the promised land. Why? Why children? Because it says here, in the middle of the verse, it says here that they were too young to have knowledge of good or evil. Too young to have knowledge of good or evil. In other words, first of all, there's no question that they were born with a sin nature. Everyone is born with a sin nature. Every child is born with a sin nature. But because of their young age, they were incapable of sinning against God. Therefore, God allowed them to enter into the promised land. And this passage has direct bearing on infants and children today and their ability to their, and God's grace that allows them to enter into heaven. Because of the age, because of the age of, a, of an infant, for example, or a young child, because they have no knowledge of good or evil, Therefore, they are incapable of sin against God. I believe God receives them into heaven if, if they were to die at a very young age. I believe instantly they go right to heaven. I don't know about you, but this encourages me so much. I don't know what I'd do without heaven. 
I, if I lost a child, I don't know what I'd do if I didn't know that I would see my child again. See, there would be no hope if there was no heaven. I can't wait to get there. You know, someone once said, and I, I couldn't f- figure out who exactly said it. I looked it up, and there's all kinds of people that this is attributed to, so I'll just put it up here. But someone once said this. If you're a Christian, this world is the only hell you will ever know. And if you're not a Christian, this world is the only heaven you will ever know. Wow. That's so true, isn't it? For those of us who are Christ followers, this world, sometimes it's like hell. But here's the good thing. This is, this is the only hell we'll ever know. Because we're going to get to heaven one day. And there will be no more tears and no more death and none of this sorrow and none of this suffering. But if you're not a Christ follower, this is the only heaven you'll ever know. This is as good as we'll ever get because there is a hell just as there is a, a heaven. I'm thankful this world is the only hell I will ever know. I'm so thankful of that. And I'm thankful that there's a real heaven and I can't wait to get there. Now, I started out this message by telling you that there are no guarantees. I was wrong, right? There are some guarantees. In this, in this, in this life in which there are no guarantees, we have just one guarantee. We have but one guarantee and that's God. You can write that one down. We have one guarantee, and that's God. And if God is the only guarantee that we have in this life, it seems to me that we ought to make it our life's ambition to know him. We ought to know him. I believe it's time, church, I say this to every one of you, and I say this to myself, it's time to, be, it's time to stop being a Christian in name only. Don't be a Christian in name only. It's time to stop and it's time to start living for Christ full throttle, 100%. It's time to stop standing you know, in the, on the middle of the fence. I mean, just straddling both sides of the fence, one leg in and one leg out. It's time to stop. Here's what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. He said, I want to know Christ. Will you underline that? I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection, to know the power that is available in your own life and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. He, he wanted to know Christ so intimately, so personally. He wanted to be so identified with him that he would even share in his, that he would identify with his sufferings, that he would share in his sufferings and his hardship. See, I believe that one of the positives that can come out of, a, of our own personal sufferings is a deeper, more intimate, more real, more personal relationship with Christ as opposed to just being a Christian in name only, as, as opposed to just being superficial in your faith and just artificial and formal and, and distant. And you just go to church and you leave and, and that's, that's all that it is to you. That's all you, your faith is to you. I believe that suffering can bring about a transformation in us. In the very last chapter of Job, he spoke of of what he gained from his suffering. Take a look at this. This is so deep. Job 42, verse 5. He said, last chapter in the, in the, last chapter in the, in the book, he said, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I knew about you, God. But now, after all that I've been through, I see you. I see you. He saw God. Sometimes our suffering and our hardship 
brings that about and makes us fall on our knees before God. And we run to him because we have nowhere else to turn. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing that can come out of our suffering. But let me just say this. I don't believe that God will purposely take the life of someone in your life, for example, and say, I, I think I want that person to have faith, so I'm going to take that person away from them. I'm going to kill their husband or their wife or their son or their daughter. I don't believe God is that cruel. But should that happen, should we lose a loved one, hopefully you will run to God and you will see God. But I don't think God will purposely take someone in your life, allow them to die in order for you to do that. I hope that makes sense. As I said earlier, there's sometimes there's no, there's no rhyme or reason for why tragedy strikes Nevertheless, God can use suffering to turn our gaze to him. I hope you will make it your greatest aspiration, your greatest ambition to know Christ. Read his word, study his word, get into a small group, come to church every single week, bring your Bible, come to our prayer meetings, pray, have your devotions every day, get to know Christ. Earlier this week, I had a dream of a personal friend, a dear friend. I actually met her uh, in my first year in college, and she was a wealthy, uh, elderly white woman. Uh, it was an unlikely friendship. Uh, young 18-year-old, 19-year-old kid with this wealthy, elderly white woman. Her name is Margaret Martin Brock. She socialized with the most powerful people in, in our city. She was the personal friend of presidents. She was a philanthropist. She, the president's home at Pepperdine is named after her, the Brock House, because she paid for it. And uh, we became friends and had a, enjoyed a friendship for over 20 years. I was always amazed that she would have any interest in me, that she would care at, at all for me. And she would regularly ask me to come and have lunch with her at her corner table at the L.A. Country Club. Uh, I would often go spend time with her at her um, condo in, in Century City. And we'd ride around in her Rolls Royce, which she absolutely disdained. Um, sometimes I would go pick her up in my little Toyota Corolla station wagon, my 1982 Toyota Corolla station wagon. And I said, Mrs. Brock, would you like to have lunch today? She says, I would love to have lunch today. I said, what would you like to have lunch? And so I go pick her up in my car. She says, you drive. She said, you drive. Because she, she couldn't drive. So she, she always, when we, had the, when we took the Rolls, we'd always take... Her chauffeur would have to, to drive us. She says, you drive. I said, where would you like to go? She says, how about McDonald's? So we would go to McDonald's on Pico Boulevard, and I'll never forget it, and we would have a Big Mac together. And I was always amazed that this very influential, wealthy person cared a lick about me. Well, she passed away in 1997, and I have so many fond memories of her and one regret. that I didn't tell her about Christ. That's my regret. I had so many opportunities to. When she was injured in a fall, I would call her occasionally, but I never prayed for her over the phone. Never even prayed for her in person. Now, I'm not making excuses for, for why I didn't share my faith with her, but I think what I did as I look back is I think I compartmentalized my life. I compartmentalized everything. So like, here's my family life. Here's my work life. 
which was in the political world. I worked at, at city council, and he was my faith life. And I never mixed the three. My family was my family, my work was my work, and my faith was my faith. My faith was my faith. I led Bible studies. I did church work. I did all kinds of stuff. I loved the Lord, but I didn't ever mix the three. And I regret that. Imagine, imagine you are blind. Imagine you are blind and, and you can't see. And all of a sudden you are healed and for the first time you can see and you don't need that white cane anymore. You don't need a seeing eye dog. What do you do? You keep quiet? Do you not tell anybody? Or do you tell everybody that Jesus healed you? That's what happened to these two men. Jesus came along, they were blind their entire lives. And Jesus came along and he healed both of them. And you know what they did in response? Matthew 9, verse 31, it says, and they went, they went away and spread his fame through all that district. They couldn't contain themselves. They just had to speak of what Jesus did for them. They just had to tell everybody. They had to make him known. They had to spread his fame through the whole district. And that's what we should do. If Christ has touched your life, then don't keep Tell others. Make him known. If he has saved your life, if he has forgiven you of your sins, if he's always there for you, tell others about him. It's like John and Peter said in Acts 4.20. It says, as for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. They couldn't shut up. If God has blessed your life, that ought to be us. That ought to be you. You can't keep it quiet. You ought to make him known. If God is the one and only guarantee that we have, then we ought to do everything in our power to know him and to make him known. Know him and to make him known. Don't compartmentalize your spiritual life and say, that's just for church and everything else is separate and I don't bring church and I don't bring my faith into the rest of it. Big mistake. One final thought. I know it's been a difficult season for some of you as you walk with your friends and your family through some very difficult times. And a number of people have actually asked me in recent days why it seems that our church has taken more than its share of, of hits and heartbreak and tragedy. Why is it that there's so much going on here? And here's my answer. First of all, our church is growing. And the bigger we get, the larger our network becomes. According to researchers at Columbia University, the average American knows 600 people. Think about that. The average American knows 600 people and, th and that means we're, we're about 1,000 about a people here. And if you multiply 1,000 times 600, that means that we know collectively more than a half million people. We, collective, we know exactly 600,000 people. Now, we may not know every single one of them intimately. In fact, those same researchers said that the average American knows 25 people well enough to trust them. 10 to 25 people well enough to trust them. And that makes sense. You know, family members, close friends, you well enough to trust them. If you multiply 25, let's take that lower number. If you multiply 25 times 1,000, that's 25,000 people. The collective we in this church know, we know 25,000 people well enough to trust them. And if one of those 25,000 people gets sick or they experience a tragedy, we will often hear about it because you will write it on a connect card. And we will pray for them. 
every Tuesday night. We will pray for them. You see, I don't believe that we have more than our fair share of suffering. We just, as we get, as our network grows larger, we just keep hearing about more and more people and their needs, and, and we, we care, and, and we want to be there. Second, it may seem that we have had more than our fair share of, of heartbreaks and tragedy because we lean toward being a very transparent church. We, we think that's important for a number of reasons. But many of you come from cultures that are rooted in shame. Asian cultures in particular place an unspoken emphasis on shame. In Asian cultures, it's often shameful to, to get sick or to have problems in your marriage or to have problems with your kids or to have financial problems, to lose your job. It's, it's shameful. It's not shameful. It's human. Right? Yet, in, in, particularly in Asian cultures and in Asian churches, it's shameful. Therefore, the tendency is not to reveal but to conceal. Oh, don't tell anybody. Please don't say anything. And we keep it quiet. And so you don't hear about problems. But here at South Bay Community Church, we encourage transparency for a number of reasons. First, because we, we need each other. To, we need help people carrying our burdens. Galatians 6, 2, Paul said, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It is the law of Christ that we would bear each other's burdens, that we would help each other out. That's the law of Christ. And so how do you bear somebody else's burdens if you don't know that they have a burden? So we, we always encourage, hey, share your, share your problems. Share what's going on so we can, pray, so we can encourage you and pray for you. And that, the other one is pray, number two, so we can pray for each other. James 5, 16 says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. We're to pray for one another. On Saturday morning, which would have been Friday, in, this is Saturday morning in Japan, which would have been Friday evening our time, one of our team members, Leanne, woke up in Japan on Saturday morning with chills and, and a racing heart. And she was just, she, she just didn't feel well. She felt horrible. So immediately they called uh, emergency and they rushed her to the hospital. And I found out almost immediately because... Um, I got a message from Natalie. I got a, a call from and Nan Shepard, who was on the team. She called her husband, Randy, and he called me immediately and said, hey, Leanne's been taken to the hospital. She's not feeling well. And so right away, we got, I put it on the, the uh, get it out to our prayer team by email. Start praying. We need to pray for Leanne. And at the same time, Typhoon was heading right toward Yokohama, which is where they were at. And then Leanne's mom, she, she sent out a, a, a group text to a bunch of people saying, hey, Leanne's being taken to the hospital. She didn't feel well. Please pray for her. And all of a sudden, my phone just started exploding with all these notifications. Everyone's just responding. Everyone's praying, te te you know, texting their prayers, just writing out the prayers. Just everyone's praying. Immediately, almost immediately, instantly, everyone's, as many people as hear about it are praying. Gaston came in the office. Hey, we've got to pray right now. Let's just pray for her. We were praying in the office. Less than an hour later, I mean, I'm not kidding, it's like a half an hour later, I couldn't believe it. I received a message from Natalie saying, oh, Leanne's fine, she's on her way back. It's like, are you serious? She's, she's okay? Are you like, are you, we're just freaking out here, right? And uh, God answered prayer so quickly. Apparently she went there and they, they said, oh, you're fine. They checked her out. And we said, oh, no, that couldn't be right. Like this, are these Japanese doctors? They don't know what they're doing, right? <laughs> Well, apparently they did because she went back and she was fine after that. 
And we couldn't believe it. Her heart was calm. I mean, her heart wasn't racing anymore, and she had any more chills. And, and then the typhoon came through, and it just kind of fizzled out. They got a lot of rain, but it just kind of fizzled out. They the 100-mile-an-hour winds that they were predicting just weren't there. But, but imagine this. If, if Leanne's condition was just kind of like, shh, don't tell anybody. Shh, hush, hush, you know. She might still be in the hospital with who knows what because people wouldn't have prayed. Right? So we need to, we want to, we want to know, how are you doing? Let us know so we can pray for you. God, God answers prayer. Finally, we encourage transparency so we can do what Paul did in Romans 12, 15, what he said to do in Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That's what we do. That's why we cry a lot. When someone gets hurt, I have no advice. I don't even know what to say but it breaks my heart enough just to cry. And that's what we ought to do. When you, know, when, you, when you come around somebody who's hurting, just cry. Don't tell them that, oh, I know what God, I know what you're going through. No, you don't know what they're going through. I know God, I know they're in a better place. Don't say that, right? Just cry with him, weep with him. See, the truth is we need each other. We can't make it through this life without each other. And I desperately want our church to be a place where you can come and we can come and I can come and we can cry with each other and we can celebrate with each other. We can have joy in the midst of suffering. And that's what many have been doing for Ted and Sandy and for James and his children, Ryan and Hannah. And I hope that you'll keep doing it. And I hope that you'll open up your own hearts because life is tough. There are no guarantees. There are no explanations for the things that happen. And there are tears, but the good news is there is joy because there's a God. Let's close our time in prayer. I don't know where you're at today. Maybe you're here and you're just, you're just reeling from some of the tragedies that have taking place in this church or maybe in your own life run to God run to God will you say to him today God I need you I need you God I know you're real God I believe Jesus was your son and that he died on a cross for my sins Today I give you my life. Today I give you my heart. Father, I pray that everyone will say that today. Everyone will say that because we all need you. God, so many of the things that happen just don't make any sense. And it breaks our hearts. It really hurts, God. And I pray that you'd bring healing to us. I pray that you'd bring comfort to us. I pray that even when we're sorrowful, we would rejoice because, because you love us and because you are in control and because there is a heaven. God, thank you for heaven. Father, will you continue to touch Ted and Sandy and will you continue to bring healing to Matt Rodriguez? Will you continue to wrap your loving arms around James and his family as they figure this whole thing out? And Father, there's so many others as well. All, all those who are hurting today, God, I lift them all up to you. God, will you touch their hearts? 
And God, help us as a church to be the church, to do what you created us to do, to love each other, to bear each other's burdens, to pray for one another, to weep with those who weep. God, do a work in our church that this wouldn't be a place we just come to. This would be a place where we would come to do life, encourage one another to get through this craziness. Father, thank you. We love you. We, we love you so much. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for sitting on the circle of the earth, watching over every one of us. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.